so I just got over being sick for two whole weeks. Woo! Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> a pretty good time. And you know, you know what you do when you're sick, right? You lay in bed for two whole weeks and you watch all of Avatar: The Last Airbender in three uh, days. Of course, naturally, classic. So I realized that I hadn't watched Avatar since I don't know, since I was like a kid, since like when it first came out. And as I was watching it, I started picking up on things that I obviously didn't notice as a kid. Some of those things being like the connections that all of the characters had with like the environment and stuff and the way like the elements interacted and stuff. And I think that it's so cool how that show, which was, it was just such a goddamn good show. It was amazing. Had the best character developments, had the best, um, Zuko, Zuko's best redemption, redemption arc. arc best redemption arc. In, so good. In all of storytelling. So good. And, I didn't realize it, but it also had like really cool environmental themes. Like the Fire Nation was like represented modernization and like how that like affects the environment and stuff. And the Air Nomads, it's just, it's so good. And I think it's a great way to get into what it is that we're talking about today. We're talking about environmental art, everyone. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> All right. So, so what, what is. What is that? See, okay, environmental art, it's a pretty broad term. So basically, in the 20th century, alongside rising global concerns surrounding the state of environments, the environment's health and our impact as humans upon it, many artists started to create works in collaboration with the physical world to draw attention to ecological issues, and uh, as well as our relationships and contributions like to them. And um, as a more defined concept, environmental art has gained like more traction since the 1990s when artists began to think about their surroundings, but like not just in terms of like living things, but also the built spaces around them. So are we, so what I remember a lot of like this from our ethics class that we took last year mm. and we talked about like the great painters and stuff and like the picturesque and the sublime and like landscape paintings and the way that the environment's been represented in that is it deeper than that because you also brought up the built environment is right how does that play so in? so that plays in later on in in the century and basically i'm I, i'm going to talk about more of um contemporary environmental art not really um you know so sublime and like you know mm -hmm. landscape paintings but more of like more more creative ways of creating art instead of just like in the fine art ways. So I'm gonna go into like a few other artists, environmental artists, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show you some of their art. And some of the art that that they made isn't like what you think is art. Some of it's just planting a bunch of wheat, and that's art. Damn. Whoa. Yeah. So um, I have a list of here like of what environmental artists do. So um. Envi uh, environmental artists, they seek to investigate our human relationship with the environment through embedding their artistic practices within it. So, like, as opposed to using, like, the art artist studio as, like, the sole location in which they create their art, environmental artists engage in the natural world in a much more active and... Um, and um, immediate way, either by working in new ways outside, or by bringing, or by bringing the natural materials into their settings, into their studios. So it's kind of like um, environmental art is trying to get out of like 
that studio or bringing in something from outside. It's intertwining the the regular artist's like habitat with mm-hmm. the natural landscape or world. With the def- with that definition though, it seems like that seems like pretty broad then because like a lot of like that's kind of what we do like a lot of Mm. like scientific environmental communicators and a lot of like geographers and environmental studies people like we try to connect the our relationship with the environment so is in a way and i don't know if this is just like me being full of myself a little bit but like are we environmental artists because like we try to tell stories and we try to like produce things that like help depict that connection so, How does that work? So so I guess this goes into like what is art then? What is art? Be- yeah, that see art is a broad term and then when you talk about environmental art then it's that's also a broad term because it also encompasses the people that you know, that have like actual occupations in mm-hmm. the environmental sciences like even environmental sciences or studies mm-hmm. geographers um cart- cartographers cartography is an art it is. It, I my first interview, the first episode I did of this podcast was actually an interview with an artist and a cartographer. Uh, I remember Molly. Yeah. yeah, she's the watercolor geographer, and mm. um, so I have a pretty deep interest in this yeah. because because of like the, this podcast is founded on like that. Yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that episode a lot. Go check it out if you've never listened to the first episode of Pod for the Planet. Yeah, Thank if you're you. if you're a true fan, if you're a true fan, you'd understand. So, um, um, environmental artists also aim to work in harmony with the natural environment rather than disrupt it. So this means they deeply consider their own impact that they as individuals have on nature and don't sacrifice its health or well-being in order to create work. Depending on your art form, if it is outside, they want to be conscientious of how they're affecting that landscape or that ecosystem. You were saying that these artists have like a core set of values with like how they interact with the environment. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how a lot of like indigenous groups and religious practices like have similar belief sets. Mm-hmm. Is there like a guiding is there like a guiding belief system that you have seen a lot of these environmental artists latch onto? How does that look? How does that play out? Um, honestly, or is it just these values? It's just these. So far, I've just observed like these particular values. There's no like real set, you know, code of if you're an environmental artist, you have to follow these. These are just like recurring elements and themes that i've saw when i was doing research on a few environmental artists so Hmm. yeah it'd be interesting if there's like an environmental artist coalition and they're like hmm what does it mean to be an environmental artist but Mm -hmm. you know then it's also like what does it mean to be an artist and so it's like i'm not good at art so like okay (laughs) that's that's like a weird sentence but like would we consider photography art? Like, could we consider like landscape photography and like it's yep that's it that's yeah, part that, of this yeah. So like, I know a lot of people that we went to school with that do a lot of stuff like that, like in the Adirondacks, mm-hmm. where it's like they take a lot of pictures and they use the medium, be it like social media or whatever. Like they use the these like beautiful landscapes to try to tell a story or try to like advocate for protecting these areas. Mm-hmm. 
is that a common theme with other environmental artists? Are they using this as like a way to send a message or are they just doing it simply for the love of the love of the medium? I feel like it's definitely a mix of both. Um, when I was doing my research on the environmental artists that I like picked and whatnot, um, it was definitely more of like we're trying to get a message out here about how we can manipulate the environment, how the environment manipulates us, and how we could become essentially more creative through the environment. And I feel like if if you are an artist, any kind of artist, and you choose a medium, you know you're, you're gonna you're gonna fall in love with that medium because that's what you're passionate about. So I'm you know it's a definitely a mix of both. Mm -hmm. So who are these artists? Who are these artists? About? So. There is Andy Goldsworth. He's one of the artists that I've researched in. And basically, he, he's a British sculptor and photographer and environmentalist. And he's known for site-specific land art made from, like, natural or found materials. And what he does is he crafts, like, different installations out of rocks, ice, leaves, branches. And then he carefully documents them and, like, how they how the installations change and weather over time whoa yeah i just pulled up his website wow there's like a lot of a lot of like stuff that he's done with snow and ice mm -hmm. that is really interesting yeah no, another thing i want to mention is that um <coughs> that en environmental artists like they use natural materials usually and uh, for the basis of their artwork and I think it shows, especially with Andy, that working in collaboration with organic landscapes, um, the artist falls subject to the like, like the the uncontrollable cycle of the seasons with their f processes of flowering, erosion, molding, decay. So when when I when I think of like his work, I think of just the natural um, cycle of like any any living thing or non living thing. Wow. Yeah. And um, speaking of um, environmental artists that use um, natural materials, um, when I was in China, our final project was basically to tell a story because, you know, Kurt loves stories. <laughs> loves stories. <laughs> and um, we had an art major that was in the program, and what she did was her project was paintings that she made um, <clears throat> throughout the six weeks and she incorporated some of the environment into her painting. So if she was drawing like the soil, she had bits of soil in the paint that she was using. Or um, there's this, um, uh, I forgot what it was called, but uh, Across the Bridge Noodles, which is this <clears throat> basically a ceremonial like mm -hmm. um, meal. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the chance to go. But um, basically she incorporated the actual soup into her, her painting her final project so i guess i guess you could say that's also environmental art because you're also taking an aspect mm -hmm. of an environment not necessarily you know of nature but i guess the cultural environment we're getting deep here <laughs> that's wow yeah that's so cool i couldn't even i wouldn't even think to put like the dirt in the paint mm -hmm. like i like it's interesting how you say like using the environmental mediums and if you look back at like art in time, like it wasn't like 
like art now like there's acrylic paint like mm. oil based paint like it's all processed and it's all like fake stuff but like paints and pigments and the things that like cave paintings like art in the past used to be inherently connected mm -hmm. to the earth just because it had to have been like like sculptures made out of rock and stuff and it was it, it just seems to me like off the bat like you just think oh yeah like art like you're using all these things but it doesn't I, like I, I guess I never really understood like the disconnect that has been created between like human art and like our human environment and like nat nature stuff right it's it's kind of like coming like coming full around circle. Yeah, full circle it's really it's interesting so who's this agnes agnes deans all right so agnes deans she is she's considered the grandmother of environmental art oh, um grandma. she <laughs> grandma she pioneered the practice of creating land art pieces that involve functional ecological systems most widely known piece is called the wheat field a confrontation back in 1982. So what she basically did was planted an entire field of golden wheat on a $4.5 million two-acre plot of landfill, which is today Battery Park City. And over the course of six months, the artist dumped 200 truckloads of dirt on the property and then weeded, fertilized, and irrigated it. And on August 16th, over 1,000 pounds of golden wheat was harvested and sent to 28 cities around the world where they are distributed and replanted. I'm looking at a picture of this right now. And for people listening, Google, please. The, please Google, because there's a picture of this woman with a stick in a field of wheat right next to mm -hmm. what is Manhattan. Yeah. That's, almost uh, like the pictures that come up are just don't look real just don't look real like it doesn't seem like i'm seeing pictures of like wheat and the twin towers like <laughs> like it, it this feels like some sort of uh like a fever dream <laughs> this is actually like <clears throat> kind of breathtaking mm -hmm. to look at it's What's the do, do you know what the meaning is behind this piece? Um behind so this? basically it was to both be like communicative and participatory as an active like salve to um to remedy ecological disasters. That's that's the that's basically the message behind wheat field. Damn. Yeah. That's crazy. And the the full title is wheat field a confrontation. Seems very confrontational. Yeah. I think it's it's so interesting because we oftentimes, especially like being from New York or like spending a lot of time in New York, you mm -hmm. lose like it feels very disconnected from the natural world. Oh, yeah. And it's so jarring to see such a not even natural, but like what what we would perceive as natural so close to that. Like mm -hmm. the juxtaposition is just like it's ridiculous in my mind. And all of New York City wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that wheat, like like a wheat field somewhere else. Right. It's like, see all this. This is where everything comes from, or at least your staple. Yeah. Your staples come from. And it's it's also like one of the staple foods. Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> a staple, like civilization, like mm -hmm. it like grew so much because like we were able to like harvest all that. So there's like super deep like it's like here's your connection. here's the starting point and then right next to this it, it's like here is 
Empire State Building. <laughs> it's breathtaking. Yeah. Ah, uh, the Red Earth Environmental Art Group. So basically, they're just um, they create self-specific works that interact with landscapes, which include like performances, installations, and other events. And um, they've been around Europe, Japan, Mongolia, and they're just they're just an art collective that focus on environmental art. So if you're into that, you should go check them out. I'm looking at please now. Google. Also, um, another thing I wanted to mention about environmental art is that um, by looking for like the new and unique and surprising locations that artists can like go to, that they're not limited by the whole commercialization of art. So big art installations or big audience or fancy buyers, you know what I mean? Like the art to market, um, the whole art to market thing apparatus apparatus yeah it like takes away power from that a bit because it's very it's bougie you know it's classist yeah. bit classist yeah i mean art. you don't you don't see like two poor people like walking into it and like into an, a gallery yeah, into a and gallery like, and like i'd like to buy that three thousand dollar right. painting yeah exactly two trees on white yeah like, so like environmental art i feel like takes away that that classist power that art has Mm-hmm. has created over mm-hmm. the over the centuries it democratizes mm-hmm. something that's like deeply human but also like deeply not at yeah. the same time which is <sighs> mind-bending deep <laughs> too deep so that that's what, what we've been talking about is mostly just like art in like the traditional sense of like what we're calling art right. like photography painting sculpting landscape design kind of um but that's not, I mean, as far it. as, I mean, for, like, as, as far as, like, the modern world is concerned, the definition of art has changed to incorporate so many, like, music and television and movies and, obviously, podcasting. So, I mean, mm. we're kind of artists. We're but kinda, like, we're, we're artists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, but, but it's incorporated so much more. So, my question is then, how, how is the environment represented in other mediums? Let's go into movies. Oh, I love movies. Environmental movies, they focus mm-hmm. on the storyline that about problems that face the planet Earth. And most of these, mo- most environmental movies are, I feel, like more documentized, like documentaries. But lately we've seen a lot more um, storytelling of more, more creative and imaginative stories, which which I feel like stirs viewers to have like more of a passionate response if they're watching a film that isn't just like, you know, save the polar bears, but like, mm-hmm. hey, this polar bear has a family and then let's animate that. I have a lot of thoughts about this and yeah. I just searched up I just searched up doomsday movies. Okay. Because yep. because I feel like a lot of the movies that talk about like environmental problems are mm. talking about like the end of the world or the end of our civilization. Um, on my first thing that comes to my mind is that the 1995 movie Waterworld with Kevin Costner. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. Just, just you wait. Just all you right, wait. All right. right. So, so I remember watching this movie as a kid, and 
I'll, I'll read you the synopsis right now. After the melting of the polar ice caps, most of the globe is underwater. Some humans have survived, and even fewer still, notably the mariner, Kevin Costner, uh, have adopted to the ocean by developing gills. <laughs> A loner by nature, the mariner reluctantly befriends Helen, uh, some actress, and her young companion, Enola, uh, as they escape from a hostile artificial island. Soon the sinister smokers are pursuing them in the belief that Enola holds the key to finding the mythical dry land. So the artificial island is like an oil tanker. Holy fuck. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, so it's, what I remember about this movie is like, if you look up like the images for it, it's like there's like boats and stuff and it's, 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 What's it called? Water world. Water. Yeah, world. and I I just remember so like that is what that's like the context of like a lot of environmental movies. Mm. It's like that doomsday Ooh. scenario. Day after tomorrow. The, when I saw that movie, it freaked me out. I did. It, it's funny because like I recently saw a fact where it's like, um, I think about five hundred scientists watched Day After Tomorrow, and they all and most like. The majority agreed, like, yeah, this would not have this, this is not possible. But this, the fear is still there. Yeah, we're like, I get it. Like, yeah, whole, like, like I'm like, it seemed pretty possible. It's it's like not exactly what would happen in the movie. What happened would play out in real life, thankfully, because that shit. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's like an all right movie. Um, it's all right. It. When I saw first time I saw it, which I was like what in seventh grade I probably, say, I was like, <gasps> I was is like, this is this is fucking terrible. But yeah. like, I, in my AP environmental class in high school, we watched it like three times. Yeah, so I'm kind of like a little over it. But it, it's like a good movie, and the premise of it is like a really good like thought experiment. Like, mm-hmm. what would happen if environmentally everything went wrong? Um, so it, it's weird to me how most of the environmental movies have such a negative connotation at least mm. like in like p- the pop culture sphere right and i think it's because partly to rate to raise awareness that if we continue what we're doing you know when it comes to climate change mm-hmm. this is what's going to happen mm-hmm. um i think a lot of it is at least in like modern hollywood that it's you get more people to go to like a dramatized version of it. Oh yeah. Like the danger factor. Like you want to make it a thriller and you want to make the environment exciting. I think like pivoting a little bit on this, on this, there's like another, there's like another side to it. The other side to the coin of like environmental movies Mm -hmm. um, where you have stuff like, and it's not really a movie, but like, like planet earth. And you have like, yeah. the documentaries where you go in and you like get these beautiful views and you get deep into it and you get these documentaries that go and talk about the environment and stuff like like I last spring I went to the environmental film festival in DC and there were so many there was this one movie called I think it was like This Mountain Life or something mm-hmm. and it was about people living and surviving in mountain areas in Canada and I was like, wow, it was such a beautiful work of art that talked about, like, people interacting with this very, like, inhospitable region. And I, it's like there's a lot more of that than I think a lot of people are aware of. And it's kind of drowned out by, like, the Hollywood pop culture 
vert like dramatized version of right. the environment. I feel like I feel like um I feel like though Disney started doing like um trying is trying to like do the opposite of that now because I remember mm-hmm. there there are some Disney Disney movies where it's like about oh follow this cheetah's life or follow this the lion um, king. No, I mean like like a do- like documentaries. Oh, oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Like follow the Shia's life or this polar bear's life, and it was about like I'm gonna say about like three years ago or so, uh-huh. where I saw like trailers of it, and th- these were these are movies that were gonna be like in theaters, yeah. not like you know on TV or anything mm-hmm. like that. So I feel like that's a that's a switch where it's like most most of the time when you find like you know documentaries like this, it's either on TV. Or some specific like, like yeah, or some specific um like film festival or film collective like National Geographic, yeah, Discovery yeah. Channel, like like they're like the big names that you think yeah, of yeah, yeah. when you think of BBC Earth, like yeah, all those names. You brought up Disney, and that made me think of was is Wally from Disney or it's is, Pixar? It's Pixar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like Wally. Wally. <laughs> I remember my brother. My brother really loved Wally, and yeah. um, he had he had like the toy Wally. Oh, that's cute! And it was, it was great. Yeah, Wally, everyone. Wally came out, and I feel like it was like at the beginning of what would turn into like a lot of like super aware movies, like super woke movies mm-hmm. for for the kids. Um, Wally was like two thousand eight, wasn't. Yeah, it was like just before that. I think it was like 2007 or something. And yep, 2008. Yeah. I mean, Wally walked so Iron Man could run. And that's on God. That yeah, that's, <laughs> that's on God. Like so we... I I wait, what were you going to say? Were you going to No, please. Oh, um <laughs> Princess Mononoke have you ever watched? I, I have not. Please, it's, what is that? Oh, you know the Studio Ghibli movies, Spirited yeah, like Away. Spirited Away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of them, and basically oh. it was about um, this um, this soldier boy. I think mm-hmm. he was a soldier. Soldier boy town. <laughs> and um, he goes to this new land where um, there's there's confrontation between a village that's very industrialized. They have gunpowder. They have um, you know, steel mills, and then on the other side are the spirits of, of the forest, and it's just this. And then Princess Mononoke is basically this human girl that was raised by, um, the wolf tribe, like a wolf tribe, and then they're wolves, like they're they're not like people, but she was basically raised by wolves, and she's like on their side, and it's. Bro, this is just like that episode of Avatar. Yeah, the episode. Yeah, with the episode where like the there's like huge, like huge section of the forest that's burned down, and there's this the spirit of the forest, like that panda thing, and the Avatar is like the bridge between the spirit world and the yeah. world, and like the human world, and the Avatar had to be like, "Why are you upset, spirit?" And he had to be like, "Because like the environment was destroyed." The environment, like, the, like that's super interesting to see like the way that like animism and like the spirituality of the environment studio studio ghibli does an amazing job in like all their movies even if it's not even like directly related to an the environment Mm -hmm. there's always like some sort of like animistic um 
factor in all their movies, which I which I really love. It doesn't take away from like, for example, Howl's Moving Castle, which wasn't really necessarily about the environment. It was more about like war and mm-hmm. whatnot. But there are animistic elements in there that didn't take away from the film, just made the universe more like like um whole whole and yeah. also um prevalent with the environment. So with all that, like with, with all the movie stuff, and we talked a little bit about like the way that it's like represented in TV. Mm. Um, my immediate thought when I think of movies always because I'm a nerd is superheroes. Yeah, yeah, We're getting into it. So like, yeah. I, I feel superheroes like superheroes always have like some big threat, and I feel like have we seen an, like an environmental thread in any and like just let's so, just talk superheroes all right so if anyone knows me on this pod already i will always try to get to talk about I'll, I'll i'll try to find some way to talk about superheroes in any episode I'm obviously so okay obviously that. it doesn't always work but um the thing about the thing about american superheroes is that um a lot of times they comics are a reflection of like today and even like now, like a lot, some people will think like, oh, it was just propaganda back then. But today, they're still, um, like for example, in the last Miss Marvel, um, comic book run, she was handling, um, gentrification, and it's like, oh, huh, in in her Muslim neighborhood, and it's like, huh, um, so like in the past, for example, um, during the Cold War, War, um. Spider-Man and Thor and Iron Man, they're fighting communist villains like um, the Chameleon, the Red Ghost, and the Black Widow, who were at the time Soviet spies. Um, you had the X-Men that represented the Civil Rights Movement, um, which I really love. Um, mm-hmm. when, when 9-11 happened, there's, there's a, for Marvel, there's an issue where um, <clears throat> many superheroes are helping the cleanup and like we're, we're like along with the first responders and even like some of the villains like Doctor Doom and Magneto are helping too, and it's like, and so for climate change, climate change it's a bit harder to like find a villain, but um, in Thor's 2015 run, and um, basically there's this evil oil company called Roxon. 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 Almost like Exxon. Oh. 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 And basically, um, Thor destroys the company's facility, but eventually Roxxon, like, they rebuild and they launch, like, a legal attack on Thor. A legal attack? Yes. The God uh, of Thunder? Basically. What? Yeah. And I feel like this was starting to... It, it's starting to... Um, come to terms that's like that like we're no longer in the whole like oh I'm a hero I'll just punch my way through it like like a lot of comics have been connecting to the real world where there are when when you do something it affects something else in Justice League I remember they um they're in this fictional um nation I forgot where it was in Africa in it's so it's not Wakanda that's Marvel, yeah, it's the, but and so in DC, um, and basically there were there were there was this um rebellion and there there was um a militia 
And basically it was once I was like, oh, we're just trying to protect our people. And, you know, we need food. We need water. Our, our, um, our, what is it? Our government is like corrupt and whatnot. And then the Justice League is there and they're like, should we like, what, what do we do? Because what happened was the United Nations was like, yeah, you're like infringing on people's boundaries. So... It's like they've never had to face a threat so political, so small. Yeah, that's it. Like com, like comics of like, like, I feel like superheroes always have like big, world threatening, yeah, character arc stuff that's like super, not connected down to like the personal like every small detail, mm. um, which makes it like really interesting to see them interact with like different types of threats, right. And, and it's, and it's funny because, um, I noticed that it's, I feel like it's mostly villains that are more like connected to the environment. Like, yeah, poison ivy. Like when it comes to, um, environment, when it comes to, um, environmental stories, it's mostly, um, deals with villains. So you have poison ivy, you have, um, this other character in, um, DC named Rose where she basically controls plants also but she's a villain and i don't know it's kind of odd and then you have swamp thing who's a hero but he started off more of like a horror character which is it's pretty cool what is swamp thing? so swamp thing swamp what do you so 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 fun fact so dc has swamp thing marvel has man thing what's man basically same thing yeah but you know and Hmm. fun fact the creator's of Man Thing and Swamp Thing dormed in the same college together. Somebody cheated off of somebody. <laughs> I forgot what what um one of them did come first and then like three months later the other. I just forgot which That's awkward. Which came Yeah. Bat, uh, botanist Alec Holland becomes the avatar of the green known as the Swamp Thing, following his death in a swamp as a result of a horrific accident. With the ability to control any form of plant life, Swamp Thing uses his powers to protect both the human and the plant worlds. Whoa. So yeah, that's basically Swamp Thing. Um, what happens when those two worlds con- collide? So... <laughs> I'll get into that. Um, so basically, Swamp Thing is the avatar for the green, and the green is basically the abstract essence of any v- vegetative life form. It's like broccoli. <laughs> yes, <laughs> broccoli, and um, basically the part seaweed. Yes. <laughs> Anything else, Charles? Yeah. Yes. Wait, wait. I have one more. Yes. Spinach? Yes. Oh. Is it green? Is it a plant? Squash. It's a plant. It Yeah. Comes from a plant. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what about apples? I'm going to throw <laughs> everything out the window. Um and the people the 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 uh What's it called? The entities that are in charge of the green are called the Parliament of Trees. And basically what they do is they pick an, a- an, an avatar every other, you know, every, you know, good chunk of time mm-hmm. to protect the green. And we, we also learn through, um, what is it? 
through other like comic book series that there's also the red, which is the embodiment of all non-plant living things so animals insects humans Whoa. and they and the and they also have um there's the avatar of the red which is um animal man check out animal man it's a great series um and then there's other there's other um there's other heroes that are also connected to the green so po- not not a hero but poison ivy is mm-hmm. connected to the green um beast boy is connected oh. to the red um yeah i know he has green, green he has green skin oh. but he could turn to animals so he's connected oh. to the red and then there's the the rot which is basically death and How pleasant and then there's there's and i remember reading in animal man where there's some there's some and there's some organisms that have a foot in the red and the rot like so, a venus flytrap um no. Oh. <laughs> I feel I feel like that would be more green. Wait. No, that would be green and red because it's a carnivore, oh, but oh. it's also a plant. So you were saying something I was saying I was saying um the red and the rot. So like parasites, flies. Oh. So it's like Yeah. Um I found Are you ready for this? Oh, I'm ready for it. I don't think you're ready for it. I found a thesis on Swamp Thing online called Green Smile Interpreted the Frustrated Ecological Possibilities in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Whoa. Yeah. And basically... That's neat. It's pretty neat. And basically, it's a thesis on like an eco-critical reading of Alan Moore's um, tenure as a writer of DC Comics. This thesis is on Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, which spanned Volume 2, Issues 20, to Volume 2, Issues 64, from January 1984 to September 1987. And Alan Moore has written Watchmen, his most famous work. They're making a TV show on HBO. They are. I'm not sure how I feel about that. For another episode. Yeah. So basically what he does is he... Um, Alan Moore, what he does is that he explores the ways in which Swamp Thing's efforts to understand the green is both a challenge and reinforce and to reinforce the classical Western division between culture and nature. And he argues that the previous writers of Swamp Thing before Alan Moore was um, this guy named Wine and Rinston. And that he argues that their Swamp Thing run establishes a non-human nature as a physically violent force that unites with violent culture to produce the monstrosity known as Swamp Thing, like his actual body. So we could interpret that as um, that the physical non-human nature of physical violence and the violence of culture combines to make this monstrosity of Swamp Thing's body, which represents the environment. So that's like based on an idea of the environment that dates back hundreds of years that the environment is something that is aggressive and that is needing mm. to be conquered, that needs to be controlled by man. Something yep. that like like the idea that like the divine right of mankind is to subjugate the environment and to make it do what we need it to do and to kind of pacify it in a way. Right. I've I've read like the abstract of this thesis. I've read the um, 
what is it? I read the first chapter, which is the introduction of the nature and cultural divide in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And they talk about Swamp Thing's violent body, like how it looks and how it's portrayed. Um, and like the invisible binary of nature versus culture. And then the trans more transformative powers of violence. And it gets deep. Interesting. And yeah. That's not what I think like a lot of people now would think of like the environment being a violent mm. like we kind of look towards it now as like a place of peace as right. like a as like a, a and, guide to go back and the to. thing is that like he basically what uh his name escapes me what alec whitford which is the author of the thesis basically what he's arguing is that the previous writers um they that they created swamp things they they, they view they view view swamp things body as a monstrosity while um, it's argued in the thesis that Moore's run establishes um, a more peaceful nature mm-hmm. that is continuously in conflict with the violence of culture. Damn. So yeah, that's it's so interesting to see the different ways that like how such a wide gamut mm-hmm. that like from the traditional artistic mediums to like comic books and yeah. to the pop culture and to even like stuff like this podcast, like the different ways that we can talk about these mm. connections and further establish and develop, like further paint the picture of like what it is oh, yeah. that we are connected to. So, um, I know we talked about superheroes and comics and the environment, but there are some comics that are like actually about the environment. So one is called I'm Not a Plastic Bag by Rachel Hope Allison, and it's by Boom Comics, came out in 2012, and it's basically um, a wordless graphic novel about waste and consumption, and the book follows a plastic bag, among other discarded items, as they find their way to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. What? Yep. And we have um, Oil and Water by Steve Doyne and Shannon Wheeler, that came out in 2011, and it's basically following the deep water horizon oil spill and a group of or, 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 Oregonians, <laughs> people from Oregon, travel to the Gulf Coast and they follow the lives of those affected by the disaster, including fishermen, wildlife rescue volunteers, and uh, a government agent. And then we also have um, IDP 2043, which is basically imagine Scotland 30 years in the future after rising sea levels have completely flooded the country's low-lying region. And the story is told in uh, six parts. So those are some actual, like, environmental... I have one more graphic novel. Yeah, there's... It's called Climate Changed, A Personal Journey Through the Science. Uh, It's by Philippe Squarzoni. And it's, like, basically it's a comic where he takes the reader on his journey of learning about climate change and mm. about like his impact and like the all about it and it's i think it's a really great primer and a great story for people who don't know too much about climate change or mm. who like don't know too much about like the way that they're connected to everything to like start getting into it all yeah comics a gateway drug to reading Ramel. yes Thank you for potting with me tonight. I had a lot of fun. It was a really good it episode. It was a great journey. It was quite a time. Thank, Thank you, you for taking me and on this journey of art and the environment. Of course.
Um, thank you for listening to another episode of Pod for the Planet. Please uh, drop a comment below. Leave us any questions you might have. Uh, like the show on Facebook. Follow um, us on Instagram. Please just blast our social media if you can. Um, drop us a comment. Subscribe. That's really the best way to help us out here. We're just trying to live our lives, you know? Get all that good content out there. Oh, all the good content. And we need your help. Oh, yeah. If you have any suggestions uh, for a topic that you might want us to cover in a future episode, we would love to hear from you. So please reach out to us at Pod for the Planet. That's Pod, the number four, the planet, on all of our social media. Uh, thanks for listening. Good night. <laughs>